and turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 5. Welcome to those, those of you visiting us. We're in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Isaiah. It'll take us through about the next year or so, um, but this is such an important book in the Scriptures, uh, such an important book to help us understand the New Testament and what comes after it. And I think you'll see some special things this morning in this passage, even though it's a heavy passage, a weighty passage. It'll give us a lot of good instruction. Isaiah chapter 5, we're in the last section before Isaiah's call, before his commission in Isaiah 6, Lord willing, next week. And I've entitled this message, The Tragedy of Wasting God's Resources. The Tragedy of Wasting God's Resources. Please follow along as I read Isaiah 5. Isaiah writes, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield forth but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of His hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the Holy One shows himself holy in righteousness. Then lambs shall graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be rottenness, and their blossoms go up like the dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets." For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. The young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. The tragedy of wasting God's resources. If you're thinking about buying a piece of land and planting, growing a vineyard, and becoming rich with your abundance of wine, think again. It's a difficult proposition. I was curious as to what it would look like to succeed and have a successful vineyard, not because I'm looking to have any more work, but just because I was interested. And I was reading uh, an article that said, to obtain a good vineyard, you'll need 600000 to $3 million to buy the right piece of land. And then yearly, approximately 300000 to $3 million to keep that vineyard going, to maintain it, to do the proper work. You'll need the right soil. You'll need hard work. You'll need to be mindful of your competition. And so if you were to engage in that type of endeavor, it would cost a lot a lot of money, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. There's a lot that goes into seeing a vineyard produce. And this is the, the, the parable, if you will, that Isaiah sings about. He talks about God putting His resources into Israel and Judah. He's done what needs to be done. Right land, removed the pebbles, the stones, the enemies, He's brought them there. They have everything they need. And then there's no production. There are no grapes. There's no profit. Isaiah puts this tragic reality to song. Oftentimes, songs serve to let our hearts kind of explode and, and, and seep out. And the sorrow that's in our heart is often kind of comes out best in song country music. You understand that reality, okay? There's a sorrow there, whether it's over your lack of producing vineyard or your broken down Chevy. You put that sorrow to song and it makes sense to you and the people hearing it. Well, Isaiah is singing a song of lament about the fact that God has put the resources in 
to making Israel and Judah who they should be, but they've produced bad fruit. Actually, the the Hebrew means they produce stink fruit. It's foul, it's putrid. And that's where we're at. Isaiah sings a song about Judah and Israel. They were the vineyard that was planted by God with the finest resources, but they failed to produce. What are we to learn from Isaiah 5? What are 21st century Christians to learn from Isaiah 5? We've been also privileged by God. He's given us all we need for life and godliness. He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's preserved His Word for us. He's given us leaders. He's given us one another. He's given us all we need. Therefore, we should bear fruit for Him. We should walk in good works. We should represent Him. We should live His life in this world. The New Testament and the Old Testament call the followers of God, those who trust in God for salvation, to bear fruit for Him. So this isn't just an Old Testament reality. We'll break this passage down into three parts, a three-verse lament, if you will, or a three-verse song about wasted resources. So we see it kind of from a negative point of view. Talked about the importance of bearing fruit, but we see that by looking at a people that didn't bear fruit. So we see it in kind of a negative connotation. So a three-verse lament about wasted resources. At the end then, I want to make sure to take some time, after we see Isaiah 5 explained, to take some time to understand it from a new covenant Christian perspective. We are not Judah. We can commit the sins of Judah and Israel, but we are citizens of a new covenant. And so I want to help, that, help us make sense of that as well at the end. Okay, so the tragedy of wasting God's resources. Here's a three-verse lament about wasted resources. Here's the first verse, the people who don't produce. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. God has put them in a place to thrive, a literal place, Jerusalem, Judah. He's put them in a place to thrive, and they haven't produced. If you want kind of a summary verse to summarize these seven verses or this reality, look at verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild or stinking grapes? Starts in verse 1, let me sing for my beloved, that's Isaiah speaking, let me sing a song for my beloved God. On behalf of God, I'm singing a lament, Isaiah would be saying. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Jerusalem is on a hill. This is his place. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. It's a picture of God removing the enemies of his, the enemies of Israel. You can see that in the book of Joshua, removing the enemies and then planting choice vines, Israel, there in Jerusalem, his people there in Jerusalem. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, a place where you would look out for invaders. So they've got all they need. They've got a place. They've got God's presence. They've got God watching out for them. That's the situation that Israel was planted into. 
dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected some return for this investment. He expected something good to happen from this. They were meant to be his light to the nations. They would dwell securely in Jerusalem and the area. They would dwell securely there. Then they would produce for him. They would represent him to the nations. They would show what the worship of the one true and living God looked like. That was the plan. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded, again, stink fruit. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? that I've not yet done in it. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now we get a prophecy about a coming judgment. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. No more protection. And it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. This is a prophecy about a coming threat to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. We know that Assyria, I've mentioned this already in the, in the passages of Isaiah, Assyria is kind of mobilizing. They're growing into the world's first great superpower. They're going to be a threat to Judah. They're going to be a threat to Jerusalem. We know that after that, we'll see this later in the book of Isaiah, Babylon actually comes and they do penetrate the walls of Jerusalem and they even tear down the temple. So this prophecy is actually fulfilled pretty soon. We know that then Israel's allowed to return back to the land. Fast forward about 700 years, 730 years or so, actually 770 years or so. And nations came and again warred against Jerusalem, and the new temple that had been built was then torn down. So in a sense, these verses have a multiple fulfillment. We know that armies one day will again war one final time with saved Jews in the future. There are, again, as we'll see in Isaiah, multiple fulfillments, multiple times, but don't miss the point. God planted his people there, expected them to bring a return. They didn't, therefore, judgment. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So when he first planted them, they were all known as Israel, separated into 12 tribes. They had kings rule over them. At one point, the kingdom was divided, and the northern kingdom itself was known as Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and then the two tribes in the south, known as Judah. So there's a separation. Isaiah is dealing primarily in his prophecy with Judah, but he will mention Israel as well, like in this verse right here. Both nations, both people should have been representing God to the world. They weren't, and so the rebuke falls to both of them. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are as pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. Now, it's not often that I try to get all fancy with you and teach you Hebrew words, but I think you need to see this. It's something we miss in the English. This is a play on words. This is God giving us two words that sound very similar, and he does that for a reason. He looked for mishpat. 
justice. But behold, Mishpach. There's poetry there. Why? Because he looked for something and he didn't get it. Instead, he got this. And it might seem to the people living at the day, no big deal. We're God's people, no big deal. We're, we're fine. They don't think what God wants and who they are is that big of a difference. But it's a huge difference to God. He looked for righteousness, sedaka, but behold, seaka, an outcry. He looked for something and he didn't get it. In their minds, we're the people of God. This is who God is, this is who we are. Look, pretty close. Not true. He's looking, again, for justice. He looks for them to care for one another, to do right by one another. But behold, they kill one another. They oppress one another. We've seen that already in the earlier chapters. He looked for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. He's not getting what he desired. So the first verse of this song, 5, 1 to 7, is about a people who don't produce They've had all that they needed. Matthew Henry said it this way. This is a great line. God expects vineyard fruit from those that enjoy vineyard privileges. That's a good word. I want you to see a New Testament call to fruit bearing. And it might not be in a place that you'd normally think about. Oftentimes we think of Jesus commanding us to bear fruit. Even the passage that Pastor Josh read earlier, John 15 is another good example. But I want you to turn for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, I think Peter had our passage, Isaiah 5, in his mind when he wrote this. There's so many parallels here. 2 Peter, the apostle writes this to the church. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. It starts with the fact that God's given us all we need. Does that sound familiar? It's how Isaiah 5 starts. I've planted this vineyard with the best resources. Look at 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, so God has given us all we need. His promises, he, He's even given us the ability to have a relationship with Him, the divine one. We are with the divine one. He, he's given us everything we need. Sounds a lot like Isaiah 5. And in Isaiah 5, he expected something from that. So, be my people to one another. Be my people to the nations. Look at the next verse, verse 5, 2 Peter 1. For this very reason, for what very reason? Because God has given you all that you need for life and godliness, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So, so I want you to get the, get the flow of the argument here. 
God's given us what we've needed, so be like this. We don't just enjoy the vineyard privileges of salvation. We actually produce now and seek to see fruit from that, fruit from our lives. God's, we've had God's Spirit put inside of us. I mean, it's, it's a silly example, but think of superpower movies, okay? Spider-Man, when he becomes Spider-Man, he does something with that. Again, silly example, but we've gone from darkness, enslaved to Satan and our own desires. We've been transformed. Now we have the power of God inside of us, so who needs love? Where are you? Who needs the right word spoken in the right season? I'm here. Who needs instruction? I'm here. Who needs, who needs an act of service done? Who needs care? Who needs forgiveness? I'm here to, to bring that to you, is what the Christian says or thinks. I'm here to produce fruit. God has made His followers the only people in the world that can represent Him from the inside. We've got something to, to do. We can produce very good fruit for the glory of our King. So salvation is not just meant to keep us from hell. Salvation's meant to be a blessing to the other followers of God and to the world. It's God's way of caring for the world, caring for the church, that He would save us. This is what He expects. And notice verse 8, for if these qualities that He's just mentioned are yours and are increasing, all those qualities He just listed, they keep you from being ineffective or notice, unfruitful. Peter expects that if you're not doing those qualities and you're unfruitful, that that would be a problem to you. He means to motivate us by this. That's right. If, I, if I'm living like this, displaying these qualities, having these characteristics, then I'm not going to be unfruitful. And again, I think sometimes in our day and age, people think of Christianity as simply just being saved. I believe in Jesus, not going to hell, not suffering wrath. Okay, glad that's settled. So now what are you going to do? How are you going to serve Him? How are you going to make much of Him? How are you going to love His people? How are you going to represent Him? He has saved you to bear fruit, to be fruitful. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter knows sometimes believers can be short-sighted or blind. They can have their vision blurred for a time. And he tells us why. Next verse. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. Again, Peter's still talking about a believer here. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The reason we don't bear fruit is because we've forgotten about what God has done for us in the gospel. When we remember what God has done for us, that rightly aligns us, that rightly removes the smoke, removes the fog, and we see clearly, look what He's done for me. I want to live for Him. When we're not living for Him and bearing fruit, it's because we've forgotten the greatness of the gospel that brought us into a relationship with Him. So the gospel reminds us of our place before God 
And that strengthens our hands, strengthens our wills, strengthens our desires to go and serve, to bear fruit, to make much of Him. This is just the plan of God. He saves the people to be fruitful for Him. New Testament reality, Old Testament reality. Back to Isaiah 5. As you're turning back there, just one final comment about these verses. Sometimes we think that we're not able to serve the Lord like we would ultimately want to. And we kind of think that I'm not able because of this situation. I'm not able to serve the Lord like I want to because of this other person. If this other person hadn't done what they did, then I could serve the Lord. They might even be in this room right now, and if they weren't here, I could actually worship better. We think that way. But God has given you today everything you need for life and godliness. And maybe the right worship of Him is in dealing rightly and Christ-like with them, not simply having them removed. So sometimes we think of, I'll be able to serve the Lord better when God's given us today everything we need. Maybe if I had a different circumstance, I could serve the Lord better. If it wasn't for this hip, then I could really do what I want. No, no, He's given you the hip ailment, and He's also given you today what you need to bear fruit for Him. Don't believe the lie. I'm too old. It's not the right time. This person's there. This is hard. He knows. He knows. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. I think of what Judah's excuse would be. Lord, we, we would do everything you're saying, but look at we have, what we have going on around us. Israel's a threat. Syria's a threat. Evidently, we're hearing rumblings about Assyria. Babylon's over there. If only those things were gone, then we could trust you and serve you like we wanted. But we have to try these idols out also because they seem to be working for other nations. No, no, no. They have everything they need to trust Him and to serve Him now. And so do we. We have everything we need to serve the Lord faithfully right now. But Judah and Israel were a people who didn't produce. Second verse of the song, longest verse, verses 5 to, or sorry, chapter 5, verses 8 to 23, the sins that will destroy. Now, in 8 to 23, we've got a list of sins. There are six woes, six curses. Cursed are you for doing this type of thing is how this second verse flows. So, we've got six subpoints here. We're just going to look through the list of Judah's sins here and see why they stunk so bad. First, we'll notice the covetous, verses 8 to 10. People who constantly wanted more and more. Verse 8, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. Now, God, when He first planted them there, they were supposed to keep their property in their tribes, in their families, and that was what they were to do. Now, 
as sin came in and as they looked to the other nations, their greediness, their covetousness changed the situations. Now people grew wealthier and wealthier to the expense of people becoming poorer and poorer. And the people in the covenant community of God weren't cared for, but it's okay because I've got 12 cars. Okay, that's what started to happen. People started to amass more and more. And, and the problem isn't the wealth in and of itself. The problem is the wealth at the expense of the people of God who were suffering, their own brothers and sisters. So woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Right now they're amassing the houses. Look. 12-car garage. Look at all the rooms I have. Meanwhile, their brothers and sisters in their covenant community are suffering. And God says, those houses are going to become desolate. They're not going to enjoy them forever. He's going to bring judgment. Verse 10, (coughs) for 10 acres of vineyard shall yield about one bath or one gallon of wine. He's showing you're I mean, you're, you're getting your land together and you're overtaking people who are in need and you're amassing this great vineyard so that you yourself would be wealthy at the expense of other people. Ten of your acres will produce one gallon of wine. You're not going to thrive in your greediness. And one homer, a seed, a homer of seed <coughs> shall yield but an ephah. There is not going to be a great return for your greediness. It's going through things like this. I think it's important to not always rush so quickly through our Bibles, but when we read about this type of sin, just to ask questions of our own heart. Is this true of me in any way? And you're thinking, not me. I don't have 12 cars. I'm not covetous. Okay? Is there any way that what I want or what you want ends up negatively affecting others? Is there any way that our pursuit of wealth ends up negatively affecting those that we should be caring for? Other people in the church, our own families. It's just a good question to think through because that's what was happening here. Is my heart and mind regularly dwelling upon having more? Is my heart and mind regularly dwelling upon having more? Am I constantly scrolling through and looking at the things that I want? That consumes so much of my day. I want this. I want that. I want this. I want, and that's where our affections go. That's, that's where we go. To the neglect of taking care of other people and fulfilling other responsibilities that God would have us to fulfill. Those are some questions you could ask, and there's probably more. But notice first we see the covetous. Then, in 11 to 17, we see the drunkards. Now, he's going to explain who the drunkards are in 11 to 12 and then show us the consequences for this in 13 to 17. But the drunkards, woe to those, verse 11, who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them or gets them going. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. But notice this, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of His hands. These are people that are constantly living for the weekend, living for the next party, living for the next five drinks. They'll rise early 
for this pleasure, and they'll stay up late for this pleasure. This is the constant partier, the constant one who's, who's altering their mind to feel good. We see again later in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.18, the call against drunkenness. And obviously this would refer to anything that alters the mind because the opposite of that is self-control. God calls His people to, in their mind, be controlled. That's why these other things are sin, takes us out of control. But notice, these people are living to be out of control and enjoy the feeling that that gives. Woe to them. And they pursue this, rising early, staying up late. But notice, at the end of 12, they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or the works of His hands. They don't ever meditate on the Scriptures. They rarely are thinking of God. We know from chapter 1, these people went to the temple. They did the sacrifices. So in today's day and age, they would be at church. But, but church, God's people, praising Him, thinking of Him, dwelling on who He is, that's just not a priority. The priorities are constant partying. Those are the priorities. When we don't meditate on the Scriptures which reveal God to us, so when we don't meditate on God's goodness and His character and what He says and what He desires <coughs> and what He calls for me to be, when we're not thinking through that and, and spending time in His Word, letting it into us. When we don't do that, we often say, it's, I'm just busy, season of life. Evidently, time wasn't the issue with these people. They're up early and they're up late. It wasn't an issue of time, it was priorities. Their pursuit was pleasure, partying, drunkenness, but they don't regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of sins. They don't have time for that. So I ask the question, Do I enjoy when my mind is altered in any way? Another question. Do I pursue pleasure but not seem to find the time to meditate on Scripture, on God, who He is, what He does? Do I just not have time for Him because I've got these other pursuits? Well, there's consequences for these people in verse 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Now, again, they, they had all the knowledge they needed. They've had prophets. They, they do the sacrifices regularly, but they still don't know God because they don't regard the Lord. They don't spend time thinking and studying His ways and talking about Him and spending time with, with other people who make the focus of the conversation, Him and His way. They don't do that. They've got other pursuits. So they go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol, this is the grave, death. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite. This is so striking. When you think of appetite so far in Isaiah chapter 5, you think of the appetite for pleasure and drink and feasting and merriment. But there's a greater appetite for those people. Their appetite seems to be big with partying and feasting. But there's a greater appetite that will swallow them in, and that's the grave. That's death. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite, opened its mouth beyond measure. 
It's meant to shock us about how great this appetite is. Death will have them. And the nobility of Jerusalem <coughs> and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. The, the, the important person and the one who trusts in the important person, all of them will go down. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. The eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts, the strong one, the general of the armies of heaven, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. He will do right. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture. This is not, do not think of this as a cute picture of a lamb on a green hillside grazing. This is not that picture. This is a torn down Jerusalem, dark clouds in the back, death and destruction all around, and the lambs eating the weeds all through that area. Then shall the lambs graze in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. There's a third type of sin that will be, that will destroy. The sinning God mockers, I call them. The sinning God markers. Verse eight, verses 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. So there's a cart that you have. You've got a rope. You attach the rope to the cart and you bring the goods in the cart to you. But this cart is full of sin and you just can't get enough. You bring the sin in, you take it, you enjoy it, you send the cart back out, you pull it back to yourself. These are people heaping up sin. They're just, that's their life. I wish I had more carts and more ropes. I want more to come to me. Therefore, my people, oh, I'm sorry, verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, now, now this is a sarcastic statement. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. They've had prophets telling them, you're sinning, you're doing wrong, you'll be judged. Let him judge me. You ever hear people say, hey, don't judge me, only God can judge me. Friend, you realize that's worse, right? That's worse. Don't flippantly engage in sin and then say, only God can judge me. That's this type of statement. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it, become, let it be quick so that we may know it. Show me. Show me that I'll, I'll pay for this. Show me that this is wrong. Well, he actually would show them pretty quickly. He did. So there's a sinning, but it also includes a mocking of God it's the one sinning who kind of thinks, I'm going to get, he's not going to do anything about this. That's what this is like. So some questions for examination. Do you belittle judgment day? Do you continue on in sin, even knowing that it's wrong, but you keep sending your card out there to bring in more? Is there any way in your life you're doing that? Next, verse 20, the truth perverters. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. People claiming to be Christians today, pointing out that people engaged in homosexuality are actually 
doing something special because at least they love one another. That's an example of calling evil good. But there are other ways that we do that. Justifying your own ungodly anger toward something else that's ungodly. They did wrong so I can hold a grudge. No, you can't. That's actually sinful. I'm just righteously angry. I don't think you are. I think you're recognizing they did something wrong, but I think you're sinfully angry in response to it. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Is there any other way? Do you think that you're gentle, but really you're passive and aren't leading like you should? I'm just throwing out a couple of examples. I think it'd be good to sit with the Lord tomorrow, now that you know the meaning of the passage, and to think through, is there any way that I do something that's wrong, but I call it good? Let's not just assume that the world only does things like that. Sit with the passage. Next, (coughs) the always right. These are fun people. The always right, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. These are the people who are never wrong. Now, they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say they're never wrong. But that sure is how they live. That's how they talk. Everyone's wrong. The people on the news are wrong. The media's wrong. Always. That sportscaster, wrong. My adult son or daughter, wrong. My pastor, wrong. My wife, wrong. My husband, wrong. My cousin, wrong. Everyone's wrong about everything except for me. I've been given the Holy Spirit of God. question, do you take advice? Yes. I'm a learner. I listen to these 10 podcasts. Yeah, but they're people that already agree with you. They just validate what you think. Do you ever take advice? Do you listen to people? Do you assume that the people around you can teach you something? I learn from people. I learn from this famous guy who has a podcast, who wrote a book. Do you learn from anyone that's actually in your presence and knows you? Do you ask questions? People who are always right tend to greatly contribute to the breakdown of relationships. In this passage, these sins are a reason that the nation ends up being destroyed. People who are always right and constantly showing you and telling you that they're right often struggle with people who are always wrong. They don't do relationships well. A lot of people who are always right have a number of fractured relationships. They're in one, they're out again. They come in, always right. You're wrong about that. Everyone's wrong. I'm out whether it's families, churches, jobs, this is the pattern. People who are always right don't, that doesn't lead to thriving relationships. 
Again, that's the context of this. Woe to you. You will have problems for being this way. It's not a commendation. And this is certainly not me saying, question the Christian faith. No, no, no. We have truth. But that doesn't mean every one of your opinions about everything in life is always true. There's a difference there. So we hold on to divine truth because this is truth not that we conjure up and we say we're right. This is truth that comes to us and we say this is right. This is right. So this is not a question of, this is not calling me to, for you to question the Scriptures. They are true. They are infallible. But God knows that people are not and so when, he, when they act like they are, that's a problem for their society. The always right. Finally, the justice perverters. Now, these are also people who are heroes at drinking wine, the, the, the drunkard type of people. But there's a, there's a little difference to these people. Notice it. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. I don't know if any of you saw the the um, highlights of the golf tournament yesterday in Phoenix. It's going on today as well, or in Scottsdale. Um, it's actually known for being the golf tournament where the fans get the most drunk and unruly. I mean, it's pathetic. But, but I mean, as I was preparing for this, I'm thinking, that is what this is. They are heroes at drinking wine. Look at me, 12 beers. And everyone cheers. That's this type of thing. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. But, but these people are different. And valiant men, in, valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty. So it's not just a general drunkenness. These are people that have some power also. So they enjoy the, the revelry, the partying, the drunkenness, the drugs, the alcohol, whatever it is. And they've also got some power here. And it may be that their mind is so altered that they make bad decisions. I don't know. But I do know that these are people who are heroes at drinking wine, who, verse 23, acquit the guilty for a bribe. They're powerful and they keep getting more and more money and they do the wrong thing to get it. And deprive the innocent of his right. All throughout Isaiah, you see these people rebuked for not caring for those who need care. Think of powerful people in nations who have money, go to the right parties, have the right fancy dinners, and who enact laws legalizing abortion, not caring for the, those that need the most care. It's an example of this type of thing. Woe to you. You and your people will be destroyed the justice perverters. But notice, these are all, these six sins are sins that destroy. They destroy families, they destroy people, they destroy societies, they destroy. Because God will not let people do these things and then thrive thinking that this works, it doesn't work. Francis Schaeffer wrote in his book, The God Who Is There, Listen to this profound quote. In a fallen world, we must be willing to face the fact that however lovingly we preach the gospel, if a man rejects it, he will be miserable. And then he says this, it is dark out there. 
I think that sums up verses 8 to 23. Rejecting the Word of God, reveling in all of these sins, and it is dark out there. There are dark consequences for this. So, as a new covenant people of God, as a people who are God's people, forgiven by Him, it's still important to go through and say, is there any way that these are true of me? To repent of them, like chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 teach us, place our trust in God's Word, God's ways, what He says about how to live, how to live rightly for the purpose of blessing and flourishing, and to come back to Him in that regard. Okay, so keeping short accounts, doing this hard examination, and recognizing what we've been saved from. Third and finally, the third and final verse, we'll move through this, the judgment that will be kindled. The song doesn't end on a happy note. The judgment that will be kindled, verses 24 to 30. The judgment that Judas will soon receive is detailed here, and notice God will use other nations to do it. Verse 24, therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, so a flame comes in and quickly things are devoured. As the dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like the dust. Why? Why will they be judged? Why will it happen quickly? For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Now that word despised, we've, been, we've come across that word before in Isaiah. The very first chapter, four verses in to this huge book, he says why they are in the predicament that they're in. Remember what he said? One four. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. So in one four, they despise God. Here in five, 524, they despise his word. And those two things go hand in hand. I'm angry that God would do this. And then when someone tries to bring God's word to you, I'm also angry at the word. I'm angry at God. People who are angry at God are hard to speak truth to. You're just going to give me some Bible verses. Yes, that's all I have. This is God speaking, and I don't apologize for that. But you're angry at the Word because you're angry at God. The two go hand in hand. They despise the Word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled, sparked against His people, and His outstretched hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuge in the midst of the streets. We do know from Amos chapter 1, there was actually an earthquake in Jerusalem during the time, during this time right here, the time of King Uzziah. So this is probably a reference to that. See, God gave this great earthquake and people died for it. Take notice of that, Isaiah is saying. God is saying through Isaiah. For all this, his anger has not turned away. He's not done. The earthquake was just a start, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 26, he will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth like you whistle for your dog. Fido, whoever he is, 
comes. God's whistling. Israel, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, come here. That's the picture. That's a shocking picture. God whistling for wicked nations to come and have their way with His faithless people. And Fido comes quickly. Assyria comes. Babylon comes. Notice the slowness to follow God's ways from Judah, but the speed at which Babylon and Assyria respond to him. None is weary. None stumbles. These nations are coming. In fact, it seems like they were ready. They're spoken of as soldiers. None slumbers or sleeps. These aren't, these aren't soldiers kind of that you got to rouse up to go into battle. No, they're already awake. None slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. They haven't, they haven't loosened their belts after dinner. So when he whistles, like, okay, hold on. No, they're ready. Belts fastened. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are bent. I mean, they're standing like this. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their wheels like the whirlwind. They, they got here fast. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions. These, these are lions at the prime of life. Young lions, they roar, they growl, they seize their prey, they carry it off, and none can rescue. There's no hope. They will growl over in that day like, <coughs> like the growling of the sea. He gives another metaphor. So Judah could be saying, I feel like I'm in the mouth of a lion. There's no escape. You're right. But here's another metaphor. It's like you're lost at sea and you see, oh, look, there's land, but that land won't save you either. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. Sinning against God never works. The judgment will be kindled. So what does this mean for us today? Well, for those who despise God and reject His Word, repent of that or be judged. This is what the Bible teaches. Sin does not lead to life. Sin should be admitted, confessed, and you call out to the author of life who has promised to save and give new life to those who mourn over their sin. Trust in the fact that God has made a way of salvation. It's by believing in Jesus Christ. Believe that He came for sinners. You need mercy. He offers it. Admit your sin. Trust in Him. He died for sinners. That's why He came. And He rose again. There's something to this message. He's alive again. God raised him up. Now to those of us, the majority of us then, who believe in Jesus for salvation, how do we respond? And here's, here's the part where we have to, again, I've said this before, so far a Jewish rabbi would agree with pretty much everything I've said this morning. What makes us different? What difference does Jesus make in the fact that I trust in Jesus? What difference does he make? So we need to read this and understand that we can be like Judah, but also, but we're not like Judah. We're the remnant that he's rescued. I, I want to focus you Christians on two phrases that we've already read. 
Verse 25. For all this, second part of verse 25, very end of it. For all this, his anger has not turned away. So Judah, the earthquake was just a start. He's not done. For the believer living on this side of the cross, guess what? God's anger has been turned away from us. It's beautiful. His anger has been turned away. We just studied 1 John before this book. Two times the word propitiation was used. Jesus is the propitiation, which means he is the anger absorber. God's anger was aimed at us. Jesus stepped in front and said, you take me. And Jesus absorbed the anger of God. His anger has been turned away from us because his anger, because of our sins, was placed on his son who willingly came to be the propitiation. This is beautiful to see. In fact, Isaiah himself will prophesy about this. Turn over real quick. I know we're going long, but Super Bowl doesn't start till 430. <clears throat> Turn to Isaiah 12. This is so good. So again, Isaiah 5, his anger has not turned away. Look at Isaiah 12, 1 and 2. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away so that you might comfort me. Guess what? That's been fulfilled for us. God's anger at us, his just anger, his right anger at us has been turned away because Jesus came out of his love for us and he absorbed it for us. And I love this. I just can't help it. This was the Father's plan also because the Father loved us. So he sent his son for us to absorb his own anger. It's beautiful. His anger has been turned away from us. 1 John 4, 9 to 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this, God showed his love to us, is what John's saying. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Death doesn't reign over us anymore. We might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He initiated this whole thing and sent his son to be the anger absorber for our sins. Beautiful. Beautiful. So that's why when, I want, when you read Isaiah 5, I want you to sit with it. I want you to look through these sins and I want you to think, is this true in my life? And you can think, man, what a downer. Yes, it is. I know. But I do not want you to stop there. If you stop there, I'm not shepherding you well. You need to see that, mourn over sin, and then look up and see the Father who loves you, the Son who loves you, the Son who absorbed the anger of God's wrath for you. So we end in joy because the gospel is real life. That's why Jesus came. We're forgiven people today. If I said, okay, the six woes, who, who's done number one this week? The hands would start flying up. Who of you will be condemned forever because of that? None of you who believe in Jesus Christ. None. It's beautiful. The gospel is beautiful. The writer of the hymn, What Wondrous Love, we don't know who it is, wrote this, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down, oh my soul, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, 
Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. For my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. One more, one more in this passage that we need to see. One more phrase. Verse 30. The light is darkened by the clouds, a picture of judgment. Darkness in the Bible is a picture of judgment. Happened in the Old Testament. And when else did it happen? When Jesus died on the cross, darkness. Darkness is saying judgment's happening. When Jesus died, there was darkness. God the Father judging the Son because the Son identified with us. Amazing thought. Literally darkness for three hours on that day. So darkness will come to Judah when they do not repent. But for us, the darkness came on Jesus 2,000 years ago. That's why we are called the people of light. Saved us from darkness. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 brought us into his marvelous light. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So Christian, consider the sins in the second verse, repent of them again, trust in the salvation that God gives. His anger has been removed from us. His darkness has been removed from us. We are children of the light. Now that we're his, now that we're saved by him, bear fruit Tell other people this message. Represent him. Do the opposite of the six woes. Bear fruit for him. I'll end with this. Young lady, 17 years old, Brittany in Louisville, Kentucky. She was so overwhelmed with her salvation, she wanted to be used for God. She wanted to go to the mission field had gone on short-term missions trips as a high school student, was planning to go to the mission field. She died in a car accident at 17 years old on Lexington Road, which is the road where Southern Seminary and Boyce College are located. This was a number of years back. Her parents got her journal the night before her death and have made its contents known. And this has actually, these words have fueled a great missions effort there at that college and seminary. journal entry, I think of the opposite of what the people of Judah were doing in Isaiah 5. They were in it for themselves, not listening to God, not caring about that salvation that he'd offered them. She, on the other hand, was in awe of the love that she'd received from God and wanted to be used for him. I'll close with this. <coughs> Brittany Bevan wrote, you hold the only peace that can fill the deepest hole, but how do I get it? You said ask and you shall receive. I'm asking, and I know that you will give it to me. Every week you bless me so much and teach me lessons after lessons. I know that once again you are showing me your love. <clears throat> I can't fathom how much you feel when one of your children suffers, but I've had a glimpse of your heartache. Please fill me with your wisdom that I won't just watch others suffer, but that I'll be able to say, what they need to hear. As a new week approaches, my dangerous prayer is that you'll place brokenhearted people in my path and fill me with you so that I can let your love heal their pain. 
That's a great prayer. It's a great type of prayer for us to pray regularly. For each of you, may the Lord and through your life. For this church, may the Lord receive His harvest through our labors. Let's pray.